welcome to Zonan Canada. I'm your host, Jesse Betteridge. Uh, Zonan Canada is a podcast focusing on the connections between anime and Canadian media. And in this episode, we're welcoming back onto the show a guest uh, who was last on a couple years ago, a Canadian who has a very, uh, I think, little over 20 year history working in the <laughs> music side of, uh, of anime. Of, uh, I think that's correct, Raj. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah so it's Raj, Raj Ramaya. Again, very long history working in the, the music side of both anime and uh, Japanese media in general. He's probably best known as vocalist for Cowboy Bebop, Wolf's Reign, more recently Made in Abyss, frequent collaborator with Yoko Kano and Kevin Penkin. And uh, Raj, what else What else have you done uh, recently? Uh, I we I did I did uh, about seven or eight tracks for Tower of God, mm-hmm. the new um, Crunchyroll release that's doing pretty well right now. With, yeah. Again with Kevin, yeah. So we did uh, Tower of God, and we've worked on a few games recently. Uh, we've got like three or four different games out um, from uh, some Chinese um, game companies, and I just finished working um, with um, Octopath Traveler. You guys familiar with that game? Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, there's yeah, a, yeah. a sequel that's coming out, I believe. Right. So yeah. I was involved with one of the tracks for the sequel for that. And then uh, I'm, I'm on a couple of other games. I'm not sure if I can say anything. It's uh, some fairly big game companies. So okay. Well, let's, uh, if, if, you're not, if you're not sure if you'd say anything, probably best yeah. uh, not to. I don't yeah. want to have to pull this whole episode. <laughs> that's not fun. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Raj, yeah. thanks so much for coming back on the show. It's always a pleasure uh, having oh. you on. So, yeah, last time you were on the show was mm-hmm. back, you know, fall of mm-hmm. 2018. Um, and we, we live in a very different world now. What has kind of, what's been up with you uh, in that time, in addition to the, the stuff you've mentioned? Um, well, uh, we did a, a very special <clears throat> uh, performance of Cowboy, Be- Cowboy Bebop's The Real Folk Blues, um, and it was um, a um, tribute track uh, with featuring Yoko Kano, yeah. and also yeah. several voice actors, Steve Blum, and just a, Bo Billingsley, just a ton of people from the original Cowboy Bebop cast and crew and musicians, and also a bunch of other people that are just fans, um, who are also composers, singers, musicians, uh, it's, and it's called Anime Gives Back, um, and, I, and uh, Funimation put it out for us, uh, it's on YouTube, you can watch it. And um, Sunrise Publishing in Japan helped promote it, and they authorized us to use it. And uh, we worked with uh, my good friend Mason Lieberman, who was um, one of the audio directors at uh, Tencent Games in L.A. Yeah, and this is one of a few things like that that's come out from from Yoko Kano and her collaborators recently. Because, of course, we are uh, in COVID-19 world right now, and uh, to varying degrees – Still, mm-hmm. still locked up and trying to avoid going outside. I think the first one of those that dropped, or the first little project that came mm-hmm. out with that Yoko Kano was spearheading, was I think that she mm-hmm. had a, a, a various artists get together to do a in quarantine performance of Lion from Macross <laughs> Frontier, and yeah. I, I, you know, I, 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 I can't keep track of all the different ones that have come out, but there's been that one. And then the the real vo- the real folk blues one was probably the biggest uh, the the biggest one um, you know needless to say uh, mm-hmm. so you know can you say more about how that came together or kind of what the the role your role was or what was going on behind the scenes yeah. with that um, well you know I, I kind of came into it a little bit late in in the game um, Mason Lieberman um, had um, he's worked on Bay Bay Beyblade Burst and a whole bunch of Pokemon stuff. And so he came by my studio in California 
uh, during GDC uh, a couple of years ago with Kevin Penke and a bunch of other people. And we had a big jam session. We had tons of fun. We all kept in touch. And then um, during the COVID-19 shelter in place, which is called in California, we're all just shelter in place. So um, he was like, okay, we got to do something. And then he put, he started talking to different people and um, he started put together, he put together a group of musicians, singers and, and performers and en- a Japanese engineer to pull us together. And then he, he, um, he contacted me He said, do you want to be a part of it? And I was like, Sounds great. And, you know, I'm, I'm at the studio every day, all day and nowhere to go. So it sounded like the, a great project to get involved with. And it just started growing and growing and more and more people wanted to be part of it. So I said, listen, I'll just sing on it. I was actually on that tour, um, that real folk blues tour back in the late nineties with Yoko. That was the tour, the first tour I went on with her and uh, Mai Yamane, she uh, sang that song. So I was there on that tour. So I sent him some pictures of me and Mai and everybody on stage. He was like, this is so cool, and let's do it for sure. And then we did we did the track, and it turned out fantastic. And um, Mason really pulled it together with the video, which you can see on um, uh, YouTube. And then I, I you know, contacted my buddy Steve Bloom, which most people know uh, from Cowboy Bebop Spike and just, you know, tons of shows and he wanted to be part of it too and it was like we couldn't we had too many people suddenly like everybody wanted to get involved and do something for the first responders and it uh, it was a great project and then i was shocked because we had to get approval from sunrise and yoko kano says i want to be involved <laughs> so i was like wow like it just kept getting better and better and and it was like we had i can't even i don't remember these other people but there was like a whole bunch of other big stars who wanted to be involved and it was crazy i it it was impressive that the cowboy bebop stuff was still that popular um and yeah it just kind of took off from there and it came out and uh, all the proceeds funimation actually supported us on this and um promoted it and uh yeah it's out there and and for all the people that view it i mean anything that we any of the proceeds go to first responders to support mm-hmm. them the COVID-19 situation and I'm very proud of it. I think it's a great, it was a great project and we're going to do more. That's, that's what I've been up to. That, that uh, has been a big release. Uh, and of course, uh, Tower of God. Yeah. That's, that's been a big thing. It's been taking off. It's been doing really, really well. Um, and, um, you know, we are very proud of that. And then Kevin and I are talking, Kevin Pankin and I are talking about, um, some other potential future projects. Um, and uh, that's kind of where we are. I, I just actually finished a Canadian project um, called Shadows of Dumont. I don't know if you know the famous kind of Canadian um, uh, rebel hero named Gabriel Dumont. Um, so he's, I mean, he's he's kind of a part of um, Canadian folklore. And uh, it's kind of an animated documentary drama uh, that I scored and, and uh, wrote some theme songs for. And uh, <clears throat> that's a really cool project that just came out. It's just going to come out on TV in Canada. So I'm proud of that well, as well. So if anybody get a chance to check out Gabe, uh, The Shadows uh, Shadows of Dumont, it's called. I, I've never heard of it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, I think... No, it's, uh, was, that, was that produced in Saskatchewan? It was produced in uh, Saskatchewan, and um, um, uh, my brother was one of the producers, actually. And uh, but it was like um, we did a joint production that, that people coming out of California. We worked on it as well. Uh, it's got some great music in it, actually, because it, it's it's semi-animated. It's a documentary drama, but it's it's like it's like a it's like a descendant of Gabriel Dumont, and talks about Gabriel Dumont, his influence on people. He was um, a real interesting character in Canadian history and mythology. Uh, and um, he was this incredible figure, uh, a rebel, 
kind of like a Buffalo Bill rebel or Jesse James rebel of the Canadian late 1800s. And um, so this animated live action road show is uh, actually really cool. Um, we're just wrapping up the trailer, so it hasn't actually come out officially yet. Uh, we'll have the trailer done in the next few days, the music for that, and then it's going to come out, and I'll be sure to send you over a press release. Hopefully you can tell people to go check it out. I think if you're Canadian, it'll be it'll be an interesting watch. Yeah, sure. uh, honestly, Gabriel Dumont, as I mentioned, doesn't doesn't ring a bell to me. He's a from my quick uh, uh, research, he's a, he's a Métis. He was a Métis leader, from what he's I understand. A, yeah. Yeah, Louis Riel, Gabriel Dumont. Yeah. I mean, I think it might be more of a maybe a Western, like uh, the uh, Prairie Province thing. I think because he's well, well, really well known. Mm-hmm. Yeah, not well. I'm over, of course, over in Vancouver, so I'm maybe too far west. But <laughs> <laughs> but it sounds like it, it sounds interesting for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah definitely interesting stuff and. Um, and uh, that's kind of what I've been working on uh, for the time being yeah. and um, kind of and taking a little yeah, time off for a while. Yeah, and I understand you're in Saskatchewan right now. I am. I come back every summer to Saskatchewan. I love it here. Um, it's amazing how many uh, people in the industry have come from come from Saskatchewan. It's, I'm always surprised. I mean, there was one – I think what was the name? There's an anime that came out. I was quite surprised. Carolyn something? Carolyn Tuesday. Yeah, Carol Tuesday. Yeah. And it turns out the composer is from Saskatoon too, right? I heard, I heard something about that. Um, yeah. Yeah. It, it's interesting to hear that because I know when you, you know, you, you worked with Yoko Kano and, and, and them on Cowboy Bebop back in, you know, the late nineties. Mm-hmm. Uh, with Cowboy Bebop, it was, anime was very, it was a very different industry back right. then. And, you know, Yoko Kano was basically collecting Mm-hmm. Various musical artists who were living in Japan for whatever right. reason, who spoke various languages and con- could contribute to this kind of cosmopolitan soundtrack that she was putting together. Right. Whereas she wasn't involved in Carolyn Tuesday, uh, which is it's of course the the the, the latest anime from Shinichiro Watanabe, yeah, who exactly. Cowboy Bebop. But that for that particular project, they were gathering artists and contributors and and animators from all over the world. It was uh-huh. uh, it wasn't a matter of finding people who were in Japan. It was reaching out and bringing people around the world together to this uh, production. And it was, very, you know, I, I, a large part of it was probably because it was done for, you know, Fuji TV's um, plus Ultra Block and, and mm-hmm. has the ties to Netflix and was distributed to Netflix internationally. And I'm sure that all played into uh, the resources that Watanabe mm-hmm. and, and, and Bone, Studio Bones had when they were doing it. But when, right. when, you, when you look at the approach to making that kind of internationalism uh, in Cowboy Bebop 20 years ago versus Carolyn Tuesday today, it's it, it's kind it's kind of a s- stunning contrast, and it's it's interesting that one of the mm-hmm. uh, I, I, of course his name escapes me as well, but w- one of the main the main contributors that would also be from from Saskatchewan. That's uh it's kind of funny. It's <laughs> Yeah, I know, and it's really interesting because they're not just one. There's probably, I mean, I'm, I can't remember everybody, but there's a, one of the biggest non-Japanese bands in Japan was two Canadian guys from Saskatchewan named Ma- uh, Monkey Magic. Yeah. <laughs> and so that's another crazy. It's just very interesting. Like, I mean, at, when, at the time when I moved, when I lived in Japan, moved to Japan, I lived there for half my life. But when I lived there in the '90s, it was just, um, I mean, there weren't a lot of foreigners around. It was unusual. We knew each other. And then, but, and so it's interesting to see how many people sort of, 
um, got involved in the music scene and, and made a splash coming coming from Canada. There's quite a few of them actually. Um, so that's a good thing. I'm, you know, I'm very pro-Canadian. So it's like, you know, I want to support other Canadian artists, and it's it's interesting to see how many people have gone to Canada, um, Canadian musicians, and actually made an impact. You know, it's it's good. It's very good. And um, I don't know what things are like now. I haven't actually lived there for a few years now. And but uh, when I go back, it's a very different scene. You know, um, it's not as quite as as international. It's strange, but it was more international back in the '90s than it is now. I can't speak for you know all of the Japanese industry, of course, but mm-hmm. it goes back to that contrast with Cowboy Bebop. You had, uh, you know, you, they could search locally and, mm-hmm. and and create kind of this international character, and now they can reach out even though, I, I guess just the way the world has changed has just made it a, diff- a different scene for for international artists in Japan. It kind yeah, of, it kind of makes sense. Yeah, I mean they've um you know anime from what I can gather because I have a few um soundtracks slated for 2021 and uh 2021 sorry and uh and so um i am uh you know one as talking to some of the agencies and some of the animation companies over the studios and they're telling me that they actually want a more international flavor uh-huh. and uh they of course they have their japanese composers and artists but they do want things to become a little bit more international to some degree so that's why I think now more than ever, anime is for the Japanese industry. They're thinking, hey, anime is, is global. And, and so they are looking at getting more global minded, uh, artists involved, maybe musicians and composers and, and singers and stuff like that. So that's, that's actually a really good thing. Um, when we started, it was like, I mean, Yoko Kano and people would just go out and scout people, literally come out. To a bar <laughs> yeah. or a ca- cafe, and literally they'd show up like like out of a movie, and just say, "Hey, we can give you their card. And, hey, give me a call. You know, we'd love to work with you." Yeah, and, there's there's a few stories about that. I, th- I think, yeah, yeah, it's just really. I mean, that was it was just bizarre. It really happened like that. And then nowadays, it's more like you know, um, they can reach out via email, right, via your website, and contact people all over the world. And I think that um, that's fantastic. And so you. You're seeing like I'm seeing more and more international flavor in anime. There's not just Japanese people involved, but there's, there's there's so many different you know nationalities involved with it, and um, yeah, it's really cool. Actually, you know, um, Steve Conti, um, if you remember Steve, one of the mm-hmm. singer songwriters, um, he's actually going to be doing a workshop. We're doing a workshop series with um, several voice actors and composers and songwriters from different um, anime and games, like um, especially anime. Uh, Kevin Pinkin is going to do a workshop with us, uh, and uh, Steve Conti is going to do a workshop, and they're going to talk about the process of making music for anime. So I'm this, really, this is an online kind of it's a, thing. It's happening? an online. Yeah, it's an online workshop. Uh, I'll send you the information. Please share it with everybody. We sure. love people to get involved with it. Uh, it's a limited, going to be limited seating. I think we're only limiting it to 15 students only and people that are really want to, who want to get into writing songs or singing or um, composing um, instrumental music for anime. This is your chance to get the behind the scenes information and hear it from people who are doing it. And uh, we're going to be having these workshops um, fairly regularly. We're just featuring Steve Conti and, um, Kevin Penkin at first, and then we're going to be adding in more people later on. But we want to give people a chance to check it out. I mean, if if you're interested in music for anime, man, this is I can't think of anything better than than you know 
hearing what they have to say and having them show you the process of what goes on behind the scenes. Yeah, I, I mean, Kevin Penkin especially, is he's definitely one of the, the biggest names, or at least one of the biggest names being pushed right now in association yeah. with not only anime music, but the international transformation of how, you know, different creative parts of anime are, are created. And, yeah. you know, the big, as you've mentioned, the big project that you collaborated with him on recently was Tower <laughs> of God. And yeah. Tower of God is based off of a Korean web comic. The, the animation production, I, I don't think it's actually a Korean co-production. I think it is, you know, it's, it's completely made within that anime production pipeline in Japan. Uh, and, but it's yeah. based off of Korean source material. But of course you have space of Korean source, source material has an Australian composer. So it's <laughs> really being, being pushed as kind of an international kind of production. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. I, I had two questions. One, um, what, what exactly were your contributions to the soundtrack on Tower mm -hmm. of God? And also what, what is your take on kind of this show as, a, as an international sort of, uh, entity? Um, well, I mean, as far as the contribution, I co-wrote, I think, eight tracks together with Kevin for the, uh, out of the 30 tracks. So about a quarter of the tracks, 25% of the tracks I co-wrote with Kevin. Um, and then I sang and, and played guitar on some of the other tracks. And so that was my musical contribution. Kevin actually came to my studio in, in San Francisco Bay Area and we worked on on this soundtrack over a couple of weeks and we got, got to know each other actually really well and became really good friends after that. And, um, so that was our, our working experience together. It was almost like a camp. We were just kind of isolated in the studio and working on, on making uh, music. Um, and, and I, what my thoughts on it are, are that it's, it's amazing because he's actually got other people to collaborate on the other tracks. So this has been a real, Kevin has been the main guy, but he's, he's invited other people like me to join him and he's doing the Yoko Kano thing, right? He's kind of being international and bringing uh, other interesting uh, musicians uh, aboard uh, to make something that's um, uh, more interesting, right? Uh, giving it a, an international flavor with people from all over the world contributing to the soundtrack. So, and I think that that's kind of what I'm seeing as a trend right now, right? With uh, anime soundtracks, that uh, you see people like Kevin and um, what's his name, um, Porter Robinson as well, doing things like the yeah yeah he he was uh, Crunchyroll produced a music video for for one of his tracks that was uh, really great. Uh, I I'm not sure if he's had other contributions uh, beyond that, but um, Crunchyroll as a you know get, getting more involved with the production committees. Uh, of, of anime in Japan and even greenlighting projects like uh, the Porter Robinson music video, um, it d definitely shows that th that those streaming companies are playing a large role because anime is kind of walking t walking in two lanes right now. On one hand, it's still something very much focused on the domestic audience in Japan and playing it like you know two o'clock in the morning and thriving off of of Blu-ray sales that are you know really just specifically focused on a, on a small audience that that follows mm -hmm. it loyally but then you have it's this huge entity internationally on streaming services that's kind of in, in an entirely different context so it's uh you know it's really interesting to see how different different companies are straddling that line and you know the, the rate the role that 
organizations like Crunchyroll are, are playing in that and kind of pushing it in the other direction as this global streaming phenomenon. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the world's changing every day now. Right. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, so you travel a lot, uh, yeah. and, of course, I, I understand right now you're actually in 14-day quarantine due to, to COVID-19. Yeah. Um, so as as someone who I, – I know you mentioned it's been quite a while since you, you've been in Japan. How, how long – I guess you, you're pretty much usually based out of San Francisco these days. Yeah, I mean, I live the majority of the time in, in, in San Francisco Bay Area, in the North Bay Area. My studio and home are over by Skywalker Sound in that area. So I'm I'm there all the, most of the time, and you know it's it's just very it's a great place. It's like a resort kind of area, close to wine country and everything. So we have a lot of musicians coming up from LA and artists coming in from Korea and Japan, China, to work at the studio, as well as people from from California and Canada. So it's it's kind of a like it's, it's almost like a boutique getaway studio in a resort area, uh, and so. That's kind of been a good thing. Um, uh, we've got, you know, ties to people in Japan and, and LA and, and Vancouver. So yeah. people just fly in and, and sort of, you know, enjoy like a, a week. <laughs> yeah. But how, how has, how has COVID-19 impacted that? Like someone who works with, yeah. who, you know, you, as much as we do things online, you still have to yeah. do a lot of face to face interaction with people. And that's obviously been greatly disrupted now. Oh, yeah. I mean, I mean, it's, it's, it was chaos for the first few months because we were, uh, we had just absolutely packed. Our summer was booked up before, um, before the new year of, you know, 2020. So we had the summer already booked solid. And we had sort of several games and animation and anime run lined up for voiceover stuff and several things going on. And then, uh, yeah, absolutely everything had to be changed to online. Uh, all of our workshops, because there were people, we'd, we'd fly people in. We were flying in, um, um, voice actors like Karen Strassman and Richard Epcar and Kira Buckland were coming in, flying in and doing and doing um, voiceover jobs and also doing stuff at the studio. And all, all of that, you know, kind of went away. So we pivoted and, and we're still doing some stuff in studio, but very very limited. Uh, we just had um, I don't know if you know Dorian Lockett. He's the voice of uh, Lando Calrissian in the new Star Wars. Um, I guess it's Star Wars animation. I'm not sure. Uh, he's probably, uh, he came, uh, one of the uh, probably one of the animated spinoffs. Yeah. Right so now. he yeah I think so yeah and so he he was in the other day and 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 we were talking about the situation how people are still trying to do in studio stuff but I mean a lot of it's been disrupted for sure. I mean it, it's it's sad. We had um for the for uh, like for Konami we did um we had a, a Tuvan throat singer. I don't know if you know Tuvan or Mongolian throat singer. Yeah. yeah. And uh, he actually came into the studio. So he flew down from Portland, came in the studio because we, we needed him to be in the studio to do it for what he does. So I guess it comes down to what essentially needs to be in the studio. We have people in, but we're doing a lot of stuff online with people. Um, and it, it works to some degree, but you can't replace that vibe of having somebody there in the room with you. You know, it's just it's just another world. And it's so nice to have people physically there with you but we work with japanese companies and they'll we'll set up you know screens for them to zoom in and and work with the musicians and the voice actors so so there we're, we're doing our best to keep things going and and it, it is not ideal and, and it's tough but you know i think that um we have to get used to a new world right and 
Yeah. You think there's going to be any like long-term consequences, at least for your end of things and and how you have to con- conduct business? Since obviously we're going to be in a similar situation for you know pro- probably close to another year. Yeah, I'm sure at least. Yeah. yeah. Um. You know, I I honestly think that for us it might actually get better. Uh, and because I mean you can do because when I lived in Japan, when I left Japan, I was doing a ton of session singing for commercials and a lot of writing with lots of people from all different kind of backgrounds different studios and they always insisted i come to the studio so yeah. as soon as i said i'm leaving i'm i'm getting married i'm leaving japan was like okay that all just kind of stopped and but now it's coming back uh, because they're going like well maybe it's okay it doesn't we don't need to have raj there physically and we can just zoom in to the studio and do stuff so in some respects I think that it opens us up internationally to possibilities, um, but it does – it hurts. It's going to hurt at first. I mean, change is always painful. Um, and so the initial change is painful, but I I think that uh, it will bring people together internationally more, right, because people will be more open to doing international – Inter- online projects, um, which a lot of older people over over 40 don't want to do, really. <laughs> They're like, you know, they, they find it a little bit scary to do that. But I think that now that there's no choice, we're going to see a lot of international collaborations. Because honestly, the uh, Anime um, Gives Back project, I was quite surprised that Sunrise and Yoko were okay with that. Because they're more traditional and they yeah. want people, you know, they want them in the studio. They wanted you to be in the studio where they can guide you and micromanage you, right? That's kind of the style. Um, so that just proved to me that, hey, we can do this online and we can be really um, productive, right? And do great things, actually. Yeah, it's, it's interesting looking at the Japanese side of the business specifically because they they seem to at least from what I've seen they seem to be having a really difficult time with all of this because you know the every part of the Japanese work culture is so incredibly yeah. emphasized or incredibly focused on actually employers and you know those who oversee or employees and those who oversee them being in the same room and that seems to go even in the creative industries as well have, like have you found that you know the the Japanese uh, companies or, or individuals that you um, collaborate with, have they had a hard time adapting, or are they, or do the companies tend to be, you know, difficult to work with in those circumstances? I mean, I think that they're they're starting to adapt to it. Mm-hmm. Um, they've been, like I said, when I, when I left in 2010, and it was absolutely, they were just like, I don't, at that time, I was just like, hey, we can still do this online. We don't have to. It doesn't have to be the end, but they were very, you know, adamant about it. It's like, no, 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 no. You have to be here in the studio. We need to have you physically here. And they would fly me back to Tokyo just to do a singing job for three or four hours. Um, and I was like, you don't need to do that. I can do it here and send you the data. There's no problem. So, you know, in Japan, the culture is very slow to make changes. Very, it's, it's, they slowly make changes. They can, once they adapt, they adapt. But I mean, they're they're you know they're traditionally they're they're very traditional and and traditionally they move slowly to make changes. The record labels were had a hard time. They they still don't like streaming. They still don't like they didn't like downloading. They still sell CDs. You know, it's like they, J- Japan is still one of the most prominent <laughs> markets in the world for physical media. I know it's it's insane. I mean, it's just it's one of those things where they don't want to change, but they are at the cutting edge of technology. It's, it's yeah. like a complete contradiction. 
you know, and it's it's just like, wow, it's like, okay, you're the cutting edge of technology, but you, you still want to sell CDs, right? Yeah, but, like, I mean, they have, like, Tatsuya rental stores uh, in, <laughs> in Japan, too, but, they, you know, they've got sections in those CD rental areas that are like, you cannot find these artists on streaming platforms at all anywhere. And yep. I, you know, I can't argue with that. <laughs> you can't argue you know, with that. You know, there, I mean, it, it's like if you're like a, a music connoisseur, which I'm sure you, I'm sure you are, and I, I am too. Um, I think it's, it, it's, it hurts the artist, but it's also kind of cool, right? You know, if you're not from a certain, from, from their point of view, you know, they, they want to protect the artist and they want to sell the product, right? Um, and, uh, it's uh the product is the CD to them because they they haven't really gotten over the age of CDs when you made like unbelievable money from selling CDs that cost you like fifty cents to make and you'd sell yeah. them for twenty dollars. Outrageous! <laughs> Outrageous! Outrageous! Yeah. I mean, us as consumers, we go like, well, what? You know? And but them, because why aren't you on like Spotify or Pandora so we can go just listen to you or YouTube? Um, so they, in some ways, they they've hijacked you know, the artist's ability to really become international, but they, they've developed this protectionist kind of society where they've been keeping everything internalized. So you got to buy it, you know, as a CD to get it. And you may have a smaller, smaller audience, but that audience is paying for the product. Yeah. Um, and, that, and that's, I've heard many yeah. arguments that that's what's holding Japanese, the Japanese music industry back internationally compared to the, say the Korean music industry, which is yeah. more than much more open about actually sharing content and making it accessible outside of you know the home country, whereas the Japanese industry is so scared to break away from the reliable domestic market that you know they has always worked for them and they know probably always will work for them. Yeah. 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 No, that's uh, that's absolutely true. I mean, they that's what I mean about moving slowly and not want make, wanting to make change. You know, it's like, you know, there is a way um, to even eat your food in Japan, and there's a way to drink your tea, and you don't mess with it, right? And because it throws everybody for a loop uh, if you do things wrong. I remember um, when I first moved to Japan, this is back in the '90s, early '90s. I, I went into a Denny's there, and I was I was taking I was studying Japanese, and I I went to the Denny's, and at the time I was a vegetarian, right? So I said, okay, you know. I just don't want the sausages with the pancakes, right? And it was like the waitress just went, "What?" And I and then she was so confused. And I said it, and I and I had Japanese friends with me who who said my, you know, I said it correctly, and then they said it to her, and they and and she was so confused. She went back to the back, and she came back um, with the manager, and then the manager said, "So why why don't you want the sausages?" And I said, "Well, I do I don't want the sausages. I just want the." pancakes and the eggs and i don't need the sausages because i'm don't eat sausages right now and um, i'm not eating meat and then he was so confused he went and got the chef and the chef came out and the chef said was there something wrong with this is something wrong with our sausages and they couldn't figure out i said no i just don't want it that way and and that just kind of really sums up the way people think it's just there is the way you know that's not the first time i've heard a story like that either something else i wanted to bring up you hear a lot now looking at streaming services like Spotify about mm -hmm. how artists are currently make so little money off of it. They make, you know, le less than a penny per play. Uh, right. and, and it's yeah. impossible for many artists to really make anything even close to a living 
or yeah. to, to make a lot of money, let alone a living mm-hmm. off yeah. of streaming music. Like, you know, what, what what's your take on the whole on the whole streaming issue? Well, I mean, the, the streaming issue is right, right now in the courts and there's going to be some um, um, some changes pretty soon in the next couple of years. We're going to see some changes on that. Um, right now, it's uh, it's really um, you're correct. It's very difficult to make a living off of streaming. I, I was in the age of when we were selling CDs and we would sell, you know, selling 50,000, 100,000 CDs wasn't a big deal. And so artists would make real money and you would make a real living. So when streaming came about and YouTube and, and everything like that, I, to me, it was upsetting because I was like, OK, you're going from making a great living to making pennies on the dollar. Uh, and uh, and is it unfair? Absolutely. It's absolutely unfair. Um, is something going to change? Yes, it's going to change. Is there a way to make a living from it still? Yes, there is. Uh, but it's different now. You have to learn to manage, to self-manage your career because unless you're a big artist, there's no cut left for a manager or anybody else or a label. So one person where I can – one really good piece of information is to go to a lady named Zoe Keating, uh, Z-O-E and then K-E-A-T-I-N-G. She's a Canadian artist, amazing cellist who does her own shows, and she actually publishes what she makes so that you can see how much she makes off of album sales, off of her streaming. And she's a successful woman. She makes a living off of it. And she's uh, somebody that I know, and she's she's Canadian like us, and, and but she lives in, in California like me. And so she has figured out, not figured out, she's she's learned to manage her career on a, on a do-it-yourself platform, which I always encourage artists to do. I do that now. I no longer have anybody managing me. I no longer have a, um, well, I have labels I work with, but I, I do a lot of it myself with my own studio, and so I can make a living. Um, and a good living as long as I'm careful and I manage it properly. So Zoe Keating is a really good template for people to look at and go like, hey, that's how it, that's what you can expect. And then if that's what you can expect, at least you are not, you know, flying blind and you can sort of go like, okay, I'm not going to make money on streaming. I've got, and I'm not going to make a lot on album sales, but I can make money selling merchandise and I can make money touring. And I should be investing my money instead into self-promotion, right? And not into trying to get a deal or a manager, yeah, right? So if you look at her online information she publishes, I think that's just an amazing resource because it lays it all out there for artists. Go, here it is. Here's a woman. She makes her $100,000 a year or $120,000 a year. But this is how she does it, you know, and there's no – there's no you're not you're not being blindsided by lack of information. She just puts it right on the table for you. So yeah, I mean we're we're moving away. Well, we you know we have moved away over the last twenty years from a one size fits all kind of approach to how you make um, mm-hmm. uh, money from music. And right. I, I don't know. Do you do you think this has created more opportunity for more people or? Do you think that this this whole obstacle of having to find your own way of making a living and and you know being able to live has made it harder overall? Or, I think, or, it, or, or maybe we shouldn't uh, totalize that much. Well, I mean, it's a it's a really good question, and I, I hear that all the time from my interns at the studio and people that I work with, and I think that my in my mind this has created um, a more of a level playing field. So that everybody, if you are a real, if you have an entrepreneurial spirit and you're, you're an independent person who can do it yourself, 
it's never been a better time to actually do things because it's all fragmenting into smaller pieces. So that means the industry is smaller pieces, which means everybody gets a piece of that pie if you want it. And so, but you have to do it yourself. You can't sit around waiting for someone else to do it for you. And smart people, smart artists uh, just go out there and go like, listen, this is, I'm going to capture this piece of the pie. When you think about it, if you have a hundred fans, just do it this way. You have, so let's say a thousand fans that pay you a hundred dollars a year. How much money do you have? Um, sorry. Hundred thousand. Okay, yeah, hundred thousand. <laughs> sorry, I wasn't, I wasn't prepared to do even no simple math. But. <laughs> no problem. So you got you got you got a thousand fans, which is not a lot of people, and each one of them spends a hundred dollars a year. That's not much to come see a show, to buy maybe you know five dollars or ten dollars for an album, to buy some merch, and support you with maybe a contribution on Patreon or something, whatever. So you've got a hundred, a thousand people to be, pay you a hundred dollars each. That's it. You have a hundred thousand dollars US in your pocket. That's it. And that's a good starting point. And I keep telling people in the industry, if, if you just break it down by the numbers, I mean, you have more chance than ever before in history to get those thousand people and to ask them for a hundred dollars. Now let's say you had twenty thousand of them, right? Um, then you, then, I mean, you just do the numbers on it exponentially. You could grow. I have some friends who, you know, have great fan bases. I mean, because I can look at Zoe's, um, breakdown and you can see that, you know, she, she does, she's not rich, but she makes a good living off of that because she understands how those thousand, three thousand fans work for her, right? Mm-hmm. How much they're willing to support her. And then, uh, she's got a, a great formula and it works for her really well and and she's just one of like thousands of people out there doing that so in other words i just think that now is a good time and and so you can just nickel and dime it and make your living as opposed to a hundred artists making all of the money and nobody making anything else does that make sense yeah yeah i mean it's it's like you know yeah it's it's a strategy and i think just like anything else and people want to put their time and effort into the strategy. The good thing about music is you have you have an actual product to sell. You're not trying to do affiliated sales or anything like that. You have a product. And a lot of people, surprisingly, they don't mind giving you five bucks or ten bucks to get your album. If you just ask them, just say, listen, support me. Give me ten dollars. And like I said, if you got thirty thousand of them, holy cow, <laughs> you've made You've made some serious money, you know, um, and I have a few friends who've done that actually quite well. Uh, and I know a lot of them who do that regularly and uh, make a surprising living off of um, just doing things. I have friends on Patreon who are making making a living off of Patreon, you know, which is kind of hard to do, but it's doable. right? Yeah, I think a lot of this has been about how consumers have changed their approach right. to or, or their attitudes towards music, especially after mm-hmm. t- over 20 years of, of piracy running rampant, which, you know, has has led to some positive change on the industry yeah. side. Uh, uh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Personally, I, I prefer to actually own my albums. Uh, so yeah. I, I am very reluctantly trying to look into getting into these streaming services. And I, I hear so much about people refusing to, you know, support Spotify because they pay so little to artists or the various problems with Apple Music, or how mm-hmm. YouTube Music's just a gigantic gong show right now because they because uh, the, they have rights for so so many 
artists split between the old Google Music, which they're abandoning, and it's going to be like that for years. It's so frustrating to wrap my head around. But there's also the yeah. other aspect of this is that those streaming platforms, that's how people find music now. That's, right. that's where you go to find music to start with, let alone support artists that you like. It, yeah. like the streaming platforms, they're kind of like radio combined with ownership, right. Um, right. which it's probably better than radio in some ways for, for in terms of finding music that you want to find. Uh, it's, it, but then, of course, on the other hand, the music can be taken away at any point on a streaming platform, so it's not as good as owning, but your options for ownership are, are dwindling, even with vinyl records being mm-hmm. a thing. Like, not everyone can put out a vinyl record, of course. And, yeah. you know, not depending on where you live, you're not always going to have great options for buying that stuff. you got to import it a lot of the time. Um, yeah. But that's kind of where I'm sitting right now and all that. Yeah. Well, have you checked out a website called Indiepreneur? No. It's an interesting um, website. Um, it's about music marketing, and, and they've got some amazing ideas on there. I like it. Um, so check out Indiepreneur. And... Uh, it, it really, I, I think it's really helpful for the independent musician um, to, um, I mean, also, I mean, a lot of people don't know about all the different things that they can access, uh, especially if you're a Canadian musician. Uh, that's a whole other conversation. Yeah. But there's Factor and there's all sorts of other grant programs that are available on uh, Canada Council, different things for artists in Canada. We have a huge advantage of our other artists. Um, Canada's got a better music ecosystem than the U.S., to be honest with you. There's just more possibility to build a sustainable fan base in the U- in Canada than there is in the U.S. and to get on tour and to utilize all the, the programs out there that, that will fund you. Yeah, I've, I've always argued that for all the problems we see with the production of like television and movies and things mm-hmm. like that in Canada, our, we, we got... The music situation here is very good. The support and the variety and the, um, God, yeah. the art and just the number of artists we've that have been able to get a, a start in Canada and, and you know have a prosperous career. It's been really good. Oh my God, Canada is amazing, Jesse. I'm yeah. telling you, man. That's why I'm really pro Canadian. Even though I live in the U.S., I I'm pro Canadian. I support Canadian artists. I buy Canadian content just because I think that. For a country of thir- what, 36 million of us now? We, we produce, con- I mean, we're next door to a giant and we're producing on par awesome content on a, on a regular basis. Like, I'm, it's just amazing. I look at, um, I always watch uh, TV shows and movies and, uh, I look at the end, at the ending credits and I go like, where is this produced? And I go, oh my god, it's produced in Canada, mm-hmm. right? And I just go like, what? This is incredible. I mean, um, some of the best composers out there, best bands, songwriters, actors. It's just like Canada is like really, really amazing. It's just it, we're just a really well kept secret, you know? Um, yeah, actually, that that leads me to another question. As someone who goes back and forth, you know, between well, a few countries, but mostly the U.S. and Canada. Yeah. What What has been your experience with accessing? Um, not just music, but any media uh, within Canada. Uh, what in what sense? <laughs> you hear much of people complaining that you know we can't we can't access certain content in Canada because you know we don't get Hulu, we don't get HBO Max, yeah. um, stuff like that. I mean, as someone who goes back and forth between the U.S. and Canada, and someone who you know works in media. Like, do, yeah. do you have any thoughts on on that, or any experiences with that? Uh, you you don't seem to have too many too too many issues with uh, with getting what you want. 
No, I mean, I, I have, I have tons of streaming services at home in the studio and, and, um, you know, I, I, I tend to think that, you know, in, in the U.S., it's just like everything's thrown up against the wall and we'll see what sticks. But in Canada, it seems to be that we have limited choices, but, but that's actually good because then you don't have, um, this sort of, you know, it's like going to a buffet and you've got so much food, you don't can't appreciate any of those dishes. You're just paralyzed by choice. Yeah, you're paralyzed by choice. Exactly. That's a good way of putting it. I mean, in Canada, I go like, hey, this is really cool. I was on Air Canada the other day and I was looking, I watched this TV show called, um, HBO show called Avenue 5, which I've never seen before. And it's sci-fi comedy and it was unbelievably hilarious and produced by Will Smith. And I, I look, it's, it's, it's all made in Toronto. Right. And I'm like, okay, I would never have seen that in America. There's no way I would have gotten there. But because in Canada, we, you know, we're, we, we kind of, the people, the, everyone here is focused on a certain kind of media and content that, you know, it's getting exposure. And that's kind of, we should be almost protecting that. Be- otherwise, it just becomes a big smorgasbord of, of all sorts of things. You're going like, I don't know if that's good or not. I'm going to try that. And you can't possibly taste everything. Right. It's just too many things on the table. And that makes for you going, it, it dilutes you. And so and so I go in every any given night in the Bay Area, I go like, well, what's out there for music? And I go, oh, my God, there's like 600 choices. And I know that 599 of them are going to you know, be mediocre. And I'm going to find one nugget. But instead, I think in Canada, we have quality, you know, that's uh, limited, like a limited menu. And that actually gives you a chance for the, the quality to shine. Right. And uh, a lot of Canadian created content. I mean, I go to the, the clubs here when, when before this, you know, I was going to clubs when I get back and I was like, the bands are amazing. It's amazing. I go like, wow, I'm just seeing hearing local bands in Canada that are amazing, you know. And then I go, I look at the charts in the U.S. and look at how many artists are successful. And there's a lot of Canadian artists on the charts. And, the time- yeah. And uh, much is being said over the last few years, just in terms of you know, all the media regulation stuff in Canada yeah. about the discoverability of mm-hmm. Canadian content. I based on everything you're saying, I, I get the impression you don't feel there's any issue with that, that it that the ability to discover Canadian artists or Canadian media is uh is not in any real danger here. I don't think so at the moment. You know, it's like um it's like um it, I think that there's um definitely like you know, it's it's we we have the advantage, but we have to like you know we have to kind of be be careful with that too because you know if if you want to just throw everything up against the the fridge as it were and see what sticks, you're taking it becomes dangerous. Then you're competing with sort of other people who have bad content but a lot of money, <laughs> yeah, to push it. And I don't think that that's where we we need to go. I think we need to really focus in on 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 you know like preserving our culture here and and, and developing the artists we have here. And I think that generates great content. In the U.S., it's like, okay, you look at it, you've got huge amount of competition for one piece of, of, of pot of money. And that's not good because, you know, you just have an overwhelming amount of people trying to get one thing. I mean, how can that be good? Right. They, and then it's like you get, it's, 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 it's feast or famine. Right. And then you you don't nurture anybody. You just get a whole bunch of people going like, I'm gonna get that. I'm gonna get that. And and then it's like it's like it's like American. It becomes like American Idol, right? It's do or die. And I don't think American Idol creates great artists. I think American Idol 
creates a cash flow for the American Idol producers, but doesn't create great artists. We'll never find another Bob Dylan for American Idol. We won't, right? You're never going to find the tragically hip from American Idol. No. You're never going to get that. All you're going to get is an industry that's making tons of money off of these poor people who are just struggling to be heard. That's kind of what, how I see that, that down the U.S. industry right now. It's just not, it's not fair. There's no, the fairness is gone, but you know, that's, that's my opinion. Mm -hmm. Well, let me flip, you know, that subject over a little bit. Whether you're Mm -hmm. in Canada or the U.S., have you ever, what's your experience accessing Japanese media, um, on this side, whether it's, you know, music or, or TV or movies or anime or whatever? I mean, I, I, I mean, I, I get I get enough so that I'm I'm happy and I go back to Japan regularly so I'm probably not the best person to ask about that. Fair I, enough. Yeah, <laughs> you can stock stock I, stock up on all those CDs when you're yeah those, CDs, I can just those forty dollars CD singles. Oh my god! Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I know that's insane. Yeah, now I'm not the, the best person to ask about that because I'm spoiled. I can just call people and have them send send me stuff anytime I want it. And like you know, people give me stuff. They send me uh, CDs and DVDs from Japan still. To the studio, so yeah, I can't be objective about that one. And I mean, what are you what are you into these days? Uh, I mean, what music are you listening to? Uh, you know, I'm listening to a lot of stuff these days. You know, I, I'm just you know, I'm I'm really you know, surprisingly, I wasn't into Spotify before, but I'm now I'm just checking out so much a variety of music on Spotify these days, and I'm just really going through all sorts of different things and different genres. I'm trying to just really explore. At this point, I can't say what I like. I just like a lot of different things. Um, and I'm exploring uh, now that because of this, this whole lockdown, I've just been able to like, you know what? I'm just going to listen to um, um, 90s electronica, right? And I'll just do that for a couple of days. And, and then I'll listen to 80s rock, you know, the next day. So I'm going like, okay, we might as well, I might as well just enjoy the fact that we can get all this, you know, on your phone. Yeah, and, and going back to, yeah, I guess the question that many people would start the interview with, um, like what what were your influences? Uh, did, was there any particular type of music you you listened to most growing up, or did you, would you say you had a pretty eclectic taste? Yeah, pretty eclectic taste, but I grew up with rock. I mean, I just grew up in in Canada with rock. It was bluesy rock. For sure. That's what I grew up with. Like, you know, I'd be listening to, you know, alternative rock in the eighties and the nineties and that's what I grew up with. And that's what I know. And I, and classic rock too. And surprisingly enough, a lot of other composers and artists in Japan, that's what they grew up too. You know, <laughs> I listen to them and I talk to them and I go, wow. And we have a lot in common. You know, it, it's, you know, rock really is a foundation for a lot of, a lot of people, you know, of my generation at least. And, and, and a lot of um, people in the, in the in the anime world, I'm surprised how many people are big rock fans, you know. Um, but and jazz, of course, right? Yeah. So there's a little bit of both of that going on. Last time I had you on the show, you were talking a little bit about how, you know, back when you were you were in Japan full time or most of the time, mm. a lot of your work was based in uh, the most important uh, part of the Japanese entertainment industry, which is of course advertising. Yeah. Uh, Japanese commercials. And I, I was just curious. I know you, you, you know, you haven't really worked in that area since about 2010, yeah. from, from my understanding. But have have you kind of kept up with uh, with just that part of the business or people who are working in there? Because I'm really interested in how COVID 19 has impacted 
uh, mm-hmm. that area because I'm, you know, I, uh, I, I follow those Japanese commercial compilations you find oh, on really? YouTube. Um, and I've noticed more of them are, you, you know, how you ha- there are certain serialized ones that you, you see the same characters popping up all the time. I've, mm-hmm. I noticed a lot of them are going into like, you know, clip show mode, showing um, scenes from, from, from their older ads. Right. Uh, I still get occasional commercials from Japan, not a ton of them, but occasionally I get a commercial here and there, and I do some TV commercials here. Um, I, I don't know really what's going on with them. Um, that was a big thing for me, and now it's it's not, so I don't know um, what's happening with them. I'd love to reconnect with them. I mean... It's. I know that it's a. It's big business still in Japan, but it's not the way what, what it used to be. It used to be like an incredibly huge business. So, but I think it's still. It's still in play. You know, it's still happening. Um, I really. Yeah, I just can't comment on that. You know, effectively right now. They still have Tommy Lee Jones in boss ads. So. <laughs> <laughs> he's always there. His face is like melting off of his skull. You know, it's just like he's gonna fall right off. You know, it's, it's, they they get him in the worst possible. I, I don't know, like um, camera positions or something. He looks awful <laughs> in those commercials. It's crazy. But, I mean, that's pretty much all he does these days, I think, too. Well, oh, man, they pay him, like, millions of dollars to do those things. It's crazy. You know, it's absolutely crazy. Yeah. They have unlimited money. There's no end to their money there with that. You know, it's crazy. Yeah. I was I was in Japan uh Back back around Halloween of last year, and I got to say I am so happy that I made it there before uh, this whole pandemic thing happened. Um, yeah. And yeah, we we watched quite a bit of TV, and you know Japanese TV. I think I think I I I am able to appreciate. You hear people complain about Japanese TV all the time. I I think I appreciate it a little more than a lot of people do. But yeah, the ads are always the best part. Yeah, yeah. totally. I mean, the TV is brutal, um, but you're right. The ads are fun. I mean, I did so many ads. I'm I think I mentioned I've got like close to 300, 250 ads, 300 ads in Japan over the years. And it was like crazy. It was just so many of them um, just on a regular basis. And, and, you know, it's like I enjoyed the ads and I couldn't I couldn't sit through most of the TV shows. <laughs> yeah. But the, ad, the ads were always lots of fun, you know, they're entertaining. So and I know that when you work in anime, you, tep- you typically don't have or anime when you work in anime or games, you typically don't have time to really engage with anything that you're not um working on but are in in you know in the area of anime or games is there anything that you've uh watched or played recently in your in in what spare time you have that uh that 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 you found notable no honestly i'm just always working i i wish i had more time to actually play and enjoy things i'm just working all the time yeah, no, sorry, I, have, I don't have any, anything right now for you on that one. I, I, you know, in the next few weeks, I will. I'm in quarantine. <laughs> All right, Raj, did you have anything else you wanted to add before we wrapped up? That's great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, Appreciate it. No problem. And, where, can, where can people find you online or on social media? Yeah, you can go to, um, you can join me on Instagram, uh, Raj Ramaya, Instagram or you know Facebook if you're still on Facebook, um, or you can just go to um, uh, strawberryhillmusic.com. And you can check out what we do there. Um, yeah, so that's it. Really, Instagram, Facebook is where I'm usually living most of the time. Hope to see you there. And, uh, yeah, uh, thanks a lot for coming on. Thanks for, to you for tuning in to Zonin Canada. You can reach me on Twitter at jbetteridge or email Canada at gmail.com. Uh, the theme song is by Ultra Klystron, and you can find that on his album Packet Flood. 
which is available at ultraclystron.com. Uh, please subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever you use. I also have a coffee account, uh, ko-fi.com slash Canada. Uh, you can leave me a tip if you like what I do. For the next little while, any money that I get through my coffee account is going to be donated to uh, local charities such as the Hogan's Alley Society or Black Lives Matter Canada or Vancouver. And yeah, thanks for listening. See you again. Thank you.